want to welcome you all here this evening and thank you all for being with us. Uh, the outlines are available. Uh, there were some on the way in or back there. The backside is, uh, <laughs> is an overview of the divided kingdom. That's what we're going over tonight. We have been studying through the scriptures, through the Old Testament in particular, with an eye to the New Testament, with a mind to focus especially on the things that are pertinent and immediately relevant to New Testament Christians. There are many lessons, many incredible lessons that could be taught and will be inevitably taught through the Old Testament that have been by many others and will be many, many more years of lessons if the Lord gives us opportunity. But uh, the special focus in this case was to things that were particularly helpful to the New Testament Christian. And, and in each of the sections, we had an overview. But one thing, and it becomes very clear here, one thing that's important to be mindful of as we talk about the sections of Scripture, there's different ways of dividing the Bible. Uh, the way that the Bible is broken up, uh, if you notice, if you're opening your, your Old Testament, it goes 5-12, That is, there are five books of the law, or histories more precisely, because Genesis is not a book of the law. Uh, you have 12 of the history of Israel, that is, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 King, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Then you have five books of the wisdom literature, five books of what are called the major prophets, and 12 minor prophets, which is kind of rude in my opinion. Because there are quite a few minor prophets that are bigger than the book of Daniel, for instance. But uh, they're called that, and it is what it is, I suppose. But one section, another way of dividing it, is the way we have, which is by time frame. So we looked at the beginning in Genesis before, before Abraham came. And then we started to, or uh, well, through Abraham, I guess. And then we looked at uh, exile, or not exile, uh, the exodus, there we go. Uh, the wilderness wanderings, we looked, at, uh, we looked at the time period leading into the promised land and the conquest of the promised land is a big part of the United Kingdom, which is Saul, David, Solomon. And then as Solomon dies, we have a changeover in the way things are done. Solomon was a wise king, though not always wise in the choices he made. The book of Ecclesiastes kind of lays that out. We looked at last week with our look at the wisdom literature. And part of the issues that come with Solomon is his struggles managing his relationship with God and the women that were in his life. And we'll see in just a few minutes there in 1 Kings 11 that part of what we oftentimes attribute to Rehoboam is actually a problem in Solomon. The problem has already existed. The separation was already going to be made. Rehoboam just hastened it. In fact, as we open here, the word that I would use is king. We're going to talk about a lot of kings. I didn't count them all. Maybe I can real quick. 19 plus uh, 20. So that's easy. That's uh, 39. You're not supposed to do math on the fly, but, you know, sometimes it works when it's easy. So 39 kings. <laughs> and we're not going to talk about each and every one of them, though. We will talk about them as groupings. Uh, as we look at the time frame we're dealing with, the divided kingdom makes up about 210 years if you're talking about the northern tribes, the northern ten, or 340 years if you're talking about the southern two. 
Because in 722 BC, Assyria conquers the northern ten tribes and takes them into captivity. They are the worst of the two kingdoms. Of Israel is the kingdom of the north, the ten tribes that God gives to Jeroboam. And, and Judah is the two tribes in the south. They last considerably longer. I didn't do that math either. I did it earlier, but then I thought I didn't think to write it down. It's 134 years. They last 134 years longer than their brethren in the north. And in part, it's because of a few good kings, maybe a few good men. Um, And so the time frame is fairly short. There's not a lot of time that we're actually dealing with, but a lot happens in this time period. We look at the facts of the divided kingdom, which is on your middle left column. The facts of the divided kingdom, when we say divided kingdom, what do we mean? We mean that there is one king in Israel and there is one king in Judah, thereby the division of the kingdom. It is split in half. Before this, and arguably to a large degree, uh, Saul, David, Solomon, it was a united kingdom. There was one king over all 12 tribes of Israel, and now there are two. There are two different groups, two different kingdoms, and so the kingdom is divided. Who is it written by? And that's a great question and has been for a very long time. That's why I use that little symbol. It means about or probably. It's probably Jeremiah. Parts of it are written by Ezra. And obviously the prophets who write during this time period write their book. For instance, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Again, it's the length of the time period of the divided kingdom. Theoretically, is 344 years. But for a time of that, the northern tribe doesn't exist. They go into captivity into Assyria, and they're really never heard from again. They are never capable of rebuilding as a kingdom. They are practically absolved. It begins, though, in 1 Kings chapter 12. Where Rehoboam loses the 12 tribes, or 10 of the 12 tribes. And if you were to open there in in 1 Kings, let's go to 11 first. Because it behooves us to do just a little bit of background work before we get deep. 1 Kings chapter 11, if we pick up in verse 30, we see some of the problem. We saw it before with Solomon. Solomon, as I mentioned before, had an issue with women. And they led his heart away from the God of heaven and earth. And as the king goes in Israel, oftentimes so do the people. And look at verse 30. He says, Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him, that is uh, Jeroboam. He's talking to Jeroboam, and he takes this new garment off of him. And he tears it in 12 pieces, which probably didn't make Jeroboam too happy. He had a new garment which are not cheap to come by, and dude just rips it off of him and starts tearing it into pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem. And so Solomon, or Rehoboam, retains two tribes, and the northern ten go away to Jeroboam, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. The capital city will remain with Solomon's family, but you will take the largest majority of the tribes and you will become a kingdom unto yourself. Because they have forsaken me, look at 33, 
Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Astaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. Milcom's especially nasty, though all of them are bad, obviously. Uh, The people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. So the problem isn't explicitly Rehoboam. The problem already existed. The, the prophecy concerning the destruction of this united kingdom into two different kingdoms coming out of it was already talked about. It had already been told to Jeroboam. And actually, Jeroboam receives a promise from God that if he remains faithful, he would keep those ten tribes in perpetuity throughout his family. Now, God knows that he will not remain faithful. The same was said to Saul. Saul was given the promise that if he remained faithful, that he would remain king of Israel But he didn't remain faithful. And so when the time came, God chose a king that was after his own heart. It ends with the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, respectfully, depending on which kingdom you're talking about. The kingdom of the north, Israel, goes into Assyrian captivity, as I said, in 722 BC. These dates aren't, in my opinion, terribly important. They're just useful for keeping track of where we are in time. And the southern two tribes go into Babylonian captivity in 587 B.C., which is the beginning of the 70 years that they would be in captivity to to Babylon slash whoever is in control of Babylon. We look at the outline of the divided kingdom. The outlining of the divided kingdom, we talked just a moment ago, 1 Kings 11, 30 through 38. The problem began before. It predates Rehoboam. But he certainly doesn't help because in chapter 12, it seems like the first day where he is literally on his way to be to be crowned king of the people. He gets an opportunity to do something merciful for the people to not take advantage of them or continue to to put harsh challenges or taxation upon them. And he chooses harsh taxation. They're complaining and I will stop this complaining by making it worse for them, right? The beatings will continue until morale improves. That was his method. And the wise individuals counseled him on, it seems like this first day on the job, you should probably let them have some grace. You should probably lower taxes. And he said, I will stop this with higher taxes, in fact, and I will push them. And he pushes them over the line. And exactly what God said through the prophet to Jeroboam happens. Ten tribes go their way against him, and they go to Jeroboam. And while Jeroboam receives these ten tribes, as easy as it was to receive those ten pieces of his previous whole garment... He makes a terrible mistake because he misses the mark. Look at verse 28 through 31. Jeroboam, he fears. He fears, verse 27, that if the people have to continually go back to Jerusalem in order to worship their God, in order to worship God, then they will begin to want to go back. And perhaps their hearts will turn back to their Lord and Rehoboam will talk them into killing me, verse 27 So they can go back. Verse 28, therefore the king asked advice, and this was the advice that he got, and he liked it. Make two golden calves, and he says to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? 
In fact, one of the golden calves has an opinion about this. He says, uh, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Why? Because they already tried this. They made a golden calf when they came out of Egypt. It's funny that none of them think about this, or maybe they do, and they like the idea because of it, perhaps. It reminds them of the past, a bad time in their past where things go terribly awry and they reject God. But he sets one up in Bethel and the other he puts up in Dan. These are two cities up in the north. He does not want them returning to Israel. He says, it's too much. It's too much for you to do the right thing. I will help you do the easy and wrong thing. I will make it as easy as possible for you to do the wrong thing. And brethren, that's the world we live in. With the gods and goddesses that aren't made of gold anymore, but are made of... All sorts of other things. We've removed the gods and we've, we've left in their place the attitudes and the desires and the temptations that they represented. If we have struggles in certain parameters, we could go to the temple of the God who, who helped with those things or who encouraged those things. And we could worship the God of lust or of, uh, of pride or of... <laughs> But we have streamlined the process here in America, here in the 21st century. We are far beyond these gods. Instead, we worship the very actions themselves. That's not progress, friends. I'm not sure what it is, but it's certainly not progress. So Jeroboam misses the mark, and because of this, he will not remain king forever, nor will his descendants. But in the long run, we kind of knew this was going to happen. In the interim, between, we talk about the theme, which is right under... Uh, the, the chronology, the timeline. The theme of the book is really there might as well be no king in Israel. Or perhaps it would be better if there weren't. I mean, when there was no king in Israel, we remember back to Judges. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, not only do they do what is right in their own eyes, they do what is right in an evil king's eyes. It would almost be better in Israel, in the northern ten tribes, if there were no king. Because all that the king does is lead them into unrighteousness. The northern kings, there are 19 of them. 18 of them are bad. Like, not good, not sort of okay. They are bad kings. And the Bible is explicit about the worthlessness of their kingdom and their works. There is one, and I'll call him Meh. There are 18 definitively bad kings. There is one who kind of gets a mixed review. It's not good. It's definitely on the bad side, and his name is Jehu, if you're interested. J-E-H-U. He ain't terrible. That's the best you could say about him. That's the kings in Israel. There's not a single one that's good. The closest you have is meh, as I would describe him. In the southern kingdom, you have a total of 20. There are 12 wicked kings, and I mean wicked. There's actually one queen in there as well that we sometimes forget about, Queen Athaliah. Terrible, terrible grandma. I'll tell you that right now. Kills her grandchildren in order to be king or queen, I guess, for her. And ends up dying in the process. And if you look and if you find a good chart, if you ask me, I can supply you with a good chart that lists how they died. (laughs) And you find a lot of the people in the south, a lot of the good kings, they die from natural causes or from old age, right? Some of them are murdered, but generally they die, right? Died. You look at the kingdoms of the north, right? The, the 19, most of them are murdered. Most of them are killed by their 
predecessor? Wait, hang on. Successor. That's what I'm looking for. Most of them are killed by their successor. Right? That's just the world that we live in. It's the world that we have. So there are 12 wicked kings. I'm not going to list them here. There are four meh kings. That is, they get mixed reviews for two different reasons. Joash and Amaziah are both kings that did well when they were young, and then they did poorly when they are older. Joash and Amaziah. And then you have Uzziah and Jotham. And I call it a mixed review because they, did, they were good kings according to what the Bible says. But every other good king, the other four good kings, they are described as good kings like their father David. And these two, Uzziah and Jotham, are good kings compared to their father. Not David, their literal father. And for, for Uzziah, that's not great because his dad was evil. And then... Jotham's dad was Uzziah. So like it's kind of like compared to the previous king, you're doing a good job. But it's not the same as they did a good job like David, their father. That would be the highest praise. So I call them meh kings, I guess. There are four good kings in the southern kingdom. Asa, 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 11. Jehoshaphat, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 43. Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 2. And Josiah, probably the most well-known of these individuals, 2 Chronicles 34, 2. Josiah is most widely known as the young king. A king that started when he was very, very young. But he became king and he starts to do some really incredible things. His demise is wildly important because he dies in the plains of Megiddo, and his death is basically the end of, oh man, the good kings in, it, in Judah. And it's the beginning of the end of the kingdom. He dies in the valley of Megiddo, and that becomes an important concept in Revelation. People talk about Armageddon. Oh, Armageddon, right, this big word. The word really just means Har Megiddo, which is the hill of Megiddo. Like we would say 9-11, you know what I'm talking about if I say 9-11. Someday in the future, 500 years from now, people won't know what that means. But now we do. It's a colloquial term. Well, Megiddo is a literal place, and it had significance. It's where Josiah died, and it's really where their chance at having good kings died as well. It's an interesting concept, and when we get to Revelation, we'll talk about it. I've been, I've been brushing up on Revelation and revamping my study because we're planning on going through it moving forward after Acts. So... I think of those kinds of things. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, that's not many good kings, is it? So while they end up in the toilet, it takes them a little longer to get there, I guess. Because as each of the bad kings, they build high places, the good kings come in and they tear down those high places. They lead the people back into righteousness. And as we see throughout the previous generations, as the king goes, so goes the people. And for good or bad... That's how it works. There are exceptions to it, obviously. There is a widow that we meet a number of times during this time period who is fantastic. She's an incredible lady, and her son seems to be great people. They take care of Elisha in a number of occasions and also are needful of him at times. There are other books that belong in this time period. It's not just 1 Kings uh, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 
There are a number of prophets that write during this. I mentioned them earlier. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. That's the book written by Jeremiah. Ezekiel, and then of the minor prophets, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah belong in this category. It's kind of weird how the Bible is set up the way we have it, isn't it? It's, it's collected in a way that's meant to help facilitate grouping them together as far as theme rather than organizing it chronologically. Because if you've ever seen a chronologic Bible, it is a mess. I'm just telling you, it is an absolute mess. Because so many things happen at the same time. So many important events are covered by multiple individuals. Think of the Gospels, for that matter. Right? What would a chronological book that, it, that dealt with all the Gospels look like? It, it would be a mess, too. And it is. I have a, a couple of them, in fact. You can take it. You can, you, can, uh, you can take it out of my library with permission, please, and take a look at it. I don't have a chronologic Bible, as far as I'm aware, yet, though I'm always interested in finding a good one. It's always a question of where they put Obadiah, in my opinion. Where does Obadiah belong? That's an excellent question and one we might cover in the future. Okay, my favorite section of this is always Jesus in the divided kingdom. I hope that wasn't too fast, but there are a lot of bad kings in the north. In fact, almost all of them. There are mostly bad kings in the south. So where do they both go? Into the toilet. That's where they go. Everything gets worse and worse until they finally get destroyed by either Assyria or Babylon, depending on where you are. But Jesus in the divided kingdom is what this is really all about. Having a good understanding of the events that take place of not necessarily dates and times. I never appreciated dates until they started to matter and I understood why they mattered. It was like history class was boring and dull and they were like, you have to memorize these dates and this event. And I couldn't do that because that's not how my brain works. And then I had a history teacher who loved history and who was able to make connections on why these dates and why these events mattered. Guess what? That unlocked Chris's brain to be able to remember things like this. And the Bible history is important as far as understanding the future into the New Testament. These things are going to be significant to a number of situations that Jesus is going to reference that Paul or, or other Bible writers are going to talk about. All right, so 1 Kings chapter 17, we meet a widow. A widow who lives with her son, Elisha. Elisha, I can do this now because I know the difference. I used to just say it really fast because before, before, uh, let's see, let me get this correct. Uh, yeah, in 1 Kings, his name is Elijah. Elijah, it's a J. He is the predecessor of Elisha. SH. And I used to just run it fast and no one knew which one I was talking about, in part because I couldn't remember which one I was talking about. Which one is which? I can't remember. But I know now, which is awesome. It took me a long time to figure it out. First Kings 17, Elijah meets a widow and he asks her for bread, but it is the last of the bread, the flour, and the oil that she has. Basically, she and her son are in desperate situation because of the sin in the land. And they are going to take the last vestitures of bread, the oil, and the flour. They're going to make a loaf. They're going to eat it. And they're going to wait to die because there is no more. And Elijah needs it. And he asks for it. And she gives it to him. And after all is said and done, he blesses her. God technically blesses her with a flask of oil that does not run dry and with a bag of flour. That's what I would call it anyway. 
that will not that she will reach in and always be able to pull some out. He supplies her for the future, for everything that she would need. And it reminds me, Luke chapter 21, Jesus points out a woman. Out of the crowd, out of all the people walking in and out of the, not synagogue, the temple, and all the money changing hands and all the money being thrown in these giant coffers that make as much noise as possible, there is a woman that he points out to his disciples, a woman who is at her last, and she gives her two pennies, right, who two pence, into the coffers, and he points her out of all the people and all the money that's given. She gives an infinitesimally small amount, and yet Jesus points her out, and what does he say of her? That she has given more than all because she gave all that she had. That is what this widow does. Both widows are incredible examples of self-sacrifice and commitment and a trust, a trust in God that he will come through for them. We never hear about the results of the woman there in Luke 21, but we know she is praised by the Lord. There in 1 Kings 17 as well, Elijah raises the widow's son. He dies, and she, and, uh, she seeks Elijah to raise him from the dead. He ends up coming all the way uh, back to her house and lays on top of him, uh, breathing into his mouth. It's a weird story, but it's incredible. And he... Rises from the dead. One of the most heart-wrenching for me is there in John eleven twenty five, the widow of Nain. Jesus is just walking through, and he meets a funeral procession and a widow who has lost her son. In this time period, a widow who is without an, uh, a descendant to take care of her is not looking at a good life. No one to take care of her. She is in bad shape. And Jesus raises her son from the dead. She gives him new life, and or he gives this young man new life, and he gives this widow a new life as well, inevitably. In 2 Kings 2, Elijah ascends in a pretty spectacular fashion, leaves his, his cloak or his robe, I guess you would say, his robe. I always struggle with what the garments are of the time period. I don't understand the garments we have today either, so... No wonder. But he leaves his cloak for Elisha, his subordinate, I guess you would call him. And he is taken up in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. Can you imagine that? I have a a book that someone gave me. I think it was Mr. Noah he gave me called Talking Donkeys and Wheels of Fire. And it's all the weird stories in the Bible. And I was like, this can't be true, right? This is totally ridiculous. So I open, there it is. And there's a reason it's there, right? It's not just spectacular and ridiculous for us. It had a purpose. And in a similar way, not with, uh, not with uh, a whirlwind and not with a chariot of fire, but in Acts 1, we see Jesus being taken up. The apostles witness it. The angels receiving him up. In 2 Kings 5, we see a man named Naaman who has leprosy, as good as dead, And he's healed through baptism. Dipping seven times in the Jordan. Now, we understand, and Naaman seemed to understand afterwards, that dipping in the Jordan seven times doesn't heal anything. It was that he had received a promise from God. And when he committed to that promise to receive it the way God had instructed him to, and he received it. If he had gone and dipped in the Abijah or the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, he could have dipped a thousand times and it wouldn't have done a thing. And if he dipped six times in the Jordan and left, he would have been... 
the closest to healing anybody's ever been. But he dipped that seventh time. And when he did, in obedience, God blessed him with healing. And in that same way, 1 Peter 2, or 1 Peter 3, 21, is talking about a, an event in Genesis, the flood. But he concludes there that baptism does now save us. In Acts 2, we could go there, that if they were to repent and to be baptized, every one of them in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins, that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They'd be added to the church. We see later that they would be cleansed of their sins. Salvation, indeed, a healing even more than leprosy is the stain of sin. It's a good descriptor, though, as leprosy consumes you, and so does sin. In 2 Kings 6, we see... We see uh, Elisha affecting someone's sight or Elisha praying. His servant witnesses the armies that are surrounding their, their little town, of their little house. And he gets concerned. And Elisha is not concerned. And the servant can't figure out why, so Elisha prays. It's a great story. Elisha prays that, they, that the Lord would open his servant's eyes. And what does his servant see? But the host of heaven standing ready to defend Elisha and his servant. How many angels does it take to destroy the armies of their enemies? I can't imagine more than one. And God doesn't just send one. There's not just one angel standing ready, but a host. Overwhelming force. That is a powerful message to the New Testament Christian. One that we need to remember. That when we serve the Lord... Our life might not become easy and breezy, but it is certainly protected. Our salvation is certainly assured if we are in Him. And that is something that no one can take from us. That is something that no one can touch if we belong to Him. And all we need to do is what Jesus spends His life doing on earth. Many times He heals the blind, people who couldn't see physically. But how frequently does He heal people from... Their preconceived ideas. How frequently does he give them the information that they need to see with spiritual eyes? Maybe not. Maybe they don't see the angels that stand ready to defend the people of God. But they certainly can see the truth of the gospel. Because he has revealed it to them. And he has revealed it to us. How many of us, hopefully all of us, he has opened our eyes to the truth. To a way that is different from the way of this world. From a life that is different from the life that this world would have you live. Jesus affected people's sight then and he affects our sight today. In Isaiah 7 is the virgin birth. I don't know if I have to go into this. Jesus was born of a virgin. It's a definitive connection. Matthew, in fact, picks that connection up explicitly. Isaiah 53 and, oh my goodness, like a lot of the end of Isaiah in general... Isaiah 53 is basically the first of them, I think. I can't think of any before. And then over the next, there's 66 chapters, so 13 chapters. This will be a relaying theme that Jesus is the servant of man. That he will die in a particular way, ironically or not ironically, coincidentally. He dies exactly how the Bible described he would die, exactly the way. That his garments would be separated, that he would be hung on a tree, that he would go through excruciating pain, and most importantly, that he would do so for his servants, for his people. 
Not for himself. Not to save himself. There was nothing for him to be saved from. But for 13 chapters, Isaiah spends talking about, well, not all 13, I guess, but a lot of the 13 chapters at the end of Isaiah. Isaiah spends talking about who Jesus would be when he comes to the fle- in the flesh, what things he would do, and how he would inevitably die for the sins of mankind. Because Jesus leads the way. Jesus was the first through the door. He showed us the way, the path that was laid before us. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said that very thing. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He set the path, and there's only one path left to take. There's only one place to go in him. And that is, through him we find redemption. We find salvation in his blood. We find the cleansing of our sins. And we find a place... A place of perfect rest, of peace, a place that is different from this world in all the ways that matter most. A hope that is beyond this life and that no one, as I mentioned before, no one can take away from us. Galatians 3 verse 27, how do I become in him? He says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through me. How do I get in him? Galatians 3.27, we are baptized into Christ when we are We put on Christ. And then we walk faithfully. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If you tonight need to put Christ on in baptism or you need to come back to him because you've been wayward. Or perhaps you need the help, the prayers, the love of the church to help you through a difficult time through struggles that come, you are not alone in that. You will not be the first. And unless the Lord returns, you won't be the last either. We all need help from time to time. We all struggle. But what's most important is that we get the help that we need when we need it. That we not be too proud to ask the Lord and we not be too proud to ask our family in the church because we love you and we want to help you. If we can help you tonight to put on Christ, to come back to him, or to be encouraged and uplifted, supported through this life, we pray that you'd let us know how we can help as we stand and sing.